Lecture 14, History, Rebbe Blyweiss, we are, um, we just briefly at the end of 13 met Shimshon, one of the most dynamic, in, unusual of all the judges of the Jewish people. Um, he judges for 20 years. Uh, we saw he is, he is a man of extremes who goes back and forth. He is simultaneously referred to as being the head of his generation, Sochamim. He judges Israel like Hashem himself judges Israel. And on the other hand, he has a huge, huge Yetzirah, lecherous, and can't quite contain it. And somehow they're contained in the same person. Um, again, we're learning all of our history and all of, all of, our, all of our Tanakh as it's supposed to be Musr for us. I don't know if you know anybody like this. I mean, I sometimes feel about myself and people around me. We're also a package of extremes, of contradictions, no? That's, that's part of what it is to be a human being on some level, and we're supposed to understand, we're supposed to learn from the example of Shimshon, how you balance that. If you can balance it, we can learn from his, his mistakes, but also learn from his virtues. Yitzhi? Isn't, isn't it, doesn't it say that like, the biggest Shimshon is the biggest Sadiq? Absolutely. Well, I, we floated this idea already, remember? We saw this already. Who was the wicked? And, and, and already, I'm giving you so much information, so if you don't remember all this, that's fair. But you remember, we recently, last, one of the last classes, we encountered this, this ferocious general who's killed with a, a peg of a tent. Oh, uh, uh, what's his name, right? Who kills him? Yeah, El kills him. And the mother's whimpering is what we learned. What do we learn from the mother's whimpering? The shofar. The shofar blast. What's his name? His name is Sisra. And he has a very famous holy descendant whose name we've mentioned already today. Rabbi Akiva. And we talked about this idea that's going to definitely recur as a pattern in history of absolutely, not just righteous people, but some of the greatest luminaries in all of our history descend from some of the greatest villains. And how do, we, how do opposites yeah, like this attract? It was like the coolest guy on earth, right? Menashe kid. Menashe ben Yosef? Or the king? The king was one of the most, correct. The, well, why not go? Why not go with the father? The father, Chizkiyahu. Chizkiyahu is one of the righteous, great heroes of all of history. Um, there is, in fact, one of the greatest moments for me, at least, because I get emotionally attached to all of this. To, to, to telling the story, for me, one of the most powerful points in history occurs with the father. He's able to do something that no previous generation is able to do, and you'll note it. You'll note it when we get to that point. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And his own son, who actually he's not going to have children because he anticipates having this wick, these two wicked sons. And one of his own sons turns into one of the greatest villains of all of history. That's Menashe. And you're right. Menashe's grandson is Yoshiahu, who's also immensely righteous and leads arguably one of the greatest Balchuva movements in all of history. So for sure, we see these opposites, and it's a pattern in history, and we, we suggested some reason, but it's kind of off, top, off topic for ourselves right now. We're trying to understand what does it mean to have this going on within one person. How can one person be both ways? And um, it's a struggle, but it's, it's it, uh, in psychological terms, they call it cognitive dissonance. Yeah. You know, cognitive, this is, you know the psychology is a soft science, so they have, they feel insecure, the psychologists, so they have to um, supplement it by having all these fancy terms for yes. simple ideas. So right, a lot of fancy terms, basic ideas. The idea is, is, is dissonance is it doesn't sound right. It jars you. But cognitively, you have to live with it. So what people do with cognitive dissonance is they make it smoothed out. They, something is glaringly wrong in their lives, so they find a way. I mean, you can use the term rationalization. right? They rationalize. They find ways of sort of smoothing out the, the crooked parts. Will, will I think someone encounter this in the case of Shimshon? Shimshon is now born. He's a Nazir for life. As we, saw, as we saw last time, 
He now goes down, he ventures down to the land of the Plishtim. If anybody has easy access, ooh, Aaron does, because he keeps an organized notebook. Um, show, for example, where your map is, and we'll demonstrate. Um, if you look at your map, Shimshon is based in Dan, in the tribe of Dan. You can keep on if you want to look. Dan is, 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 in the, is in the south area near the coast. So he's, he's in Dan, and the Plishtim are located around the coastal area of Ashkelon, Ashdod, Aza, Gat, and Ekron are the five Plishtim cities. And he goes down to the Plishtim. Remember the Plishtim are the big bad guys, the, the enemies in these days. His intention is L'shem Shemaim. He wants to infiltrate the bad guys and overwhelm them. When he's there, he meets a woman, a non-Jewish woman from the place of Timna. Vayar Isha, he sees the woman, and be, make note of that. Why is that significant for Shimshon? Eyes. Eyes are a major metaphor in, in, in Shimshon. He sees the woman, and he plans to marry her. By the way, we have a halacha about seeing. Do you know this? It's called histaklus. It's brought down explicitly in the Shulchan Aruch, Eben Ezer, Siman Chaf, if you want to look it up. Histaklus benoshim. Guys are not allowed to look at girls. And doing so, now what is the difference? Can you go up to a bank teller and say, I'd like to deposit $20, please? Can you say that and even potentially look at her while you're doing that? Potentially, yeah. A lot of it has to do with the intention of the looker. If he's leering and he said, God, can I, was the old Peter Lorre Peter Lorre voice that I remember from my youth? Can I please deposit $20? $20? Something's wrong with that guy. Right, so that's not good. You're saying, can I please deposit this? And it's done very in a very professional, business-like kind of a manner. Fine. Do you know the difference between casual looking, which is mutter, and histaklus, which is usher? About three or four seconds, the post can say. You hear, you hear the idea? Meaning, there's a difference between a this and a this. Just a few extra seconds is already a stare. That's what's a problem. And, and Torah knows us better than we know ourselves. So the Torah prohibits us from doing that because it says that's the first the eyes see, the heart develops uh, uh, an obsession, a lust, and then the body ultimately acts. But the seed of sin ultimately goes back to the eyes. That's why there's a major, major emphasis in what we call Shmiras A9, trying to guard our eyes because if we don't see the bad stuff, uh, we, 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 we often can forfend the, uh, the sinning uh, for a long way. People who've seen pornography in their lives once, I, hate if, I, I, I know this is a heavy statement, but it's simply true. I'm just, making, I'm just illustrating the point. If you've ever once laid your eyes on pornography, you will never look again at women, and it'll affect your relationships. It'll affect your marriage, inevitably. Contrast that with somebody who's simply never seen pornography. He's never seen that. When he, gets, he has simply a qualitatively different life. He will, I mean, doesn't mean he's, he's made up other issues and other, other problems. But what you've seen, even though you can make tshuva and you can get deconditioned um, so that when you see it again, it's like, oh no, that's terrible, I don't want to see that anymore. But having once laid eyes on the image, the image is indelibly planted in the brain and you can make tshuva, but the tshuva is like an old shirt that got stained, but you can still detect the stain. If the stain never fully comes out, is the problem. So does that mean it's all over if once you've seen pornography? Chas v'sholom. The more images that you behold, the worse it is for your neshama. And so from this point on, Baruch Hashem, you're all young, right? You have your life in front of you. You, can, you have a lot of say in terms of what images are going to be planted in your brain, in your neshama. And, and, and Shimshon, his, his major aberration was Vayar Isha. He wasn't careful, and he planned to marry this woman, meaning at least in him he tried not to translate the 
the image into sin. He wanted to do it in the kosher style. And the post can tell us when he got married, so there's not just one, there are a few of them, they all converted. He did it in a legal kosher kind of a way. They converted, he married, that's okay. Um, but still, his eyes led him astray. Yeah. It's one of the six constants mode too. I mean, so it's Absolutely. Not right, right, right. Not to stray after your heart and mind, after the mind is not to stray after um, heretical ideas and after your eyes, not to see bad things that lead you astray, which is a very common theme in people. It's so common in, in the world today. I think the general reaction is, oh, come on, Rabbi, what are you suggesting? Everybody sees stuff. No, that's not true that everybody sees stuff. Uh, people who, who, the people who are careful, who lead lives um, of Kedusha, who never have seen anything, and there are a lot of them, uh, let's say you just go out the doors in the yeshiva, go around this community, you'll meet a lot of people like that. You ever see these advertisements around these buildings that say, um, we do not have a computer in this entire apartment complex? Because we're trying to maintain, it's not perfect, it's not foolproof, you know, if the kids today, if the kids, they can raise, they, the, 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 these religious families that try to raise kids with a, in an atmosphere of Kedusha, the kids can go outside and find internet too, and sometimes that happens. But at least you try, you do your best, you try to try to give them a chance. Well, Rabbi, if you if you hold them back completely from it, they never get used to living with it. Which they'll eventually have to do at some point in their life. Eventually so the kids grow up. That's the house. theory. That's the theory. Eventually you see it, and there is an absolute logic to what you're saying that maybe because they've been um, they've been uh, kept back from these things, maybe when they finally have access, they're gonna explode and go crazy. There is such an idea, but I would say, I would counter in my experience, I do have a certain amount of experience living, what happens is, is that if you can get them over the hurdle of adolescence, or in Hebrew they call it guilty peshestray, peshestray is 16, so guilty peshestray is a play on words, means stupid, stupid team, and if you get them past that phase, that'd probably be on 16, 18, 19, 20, into adult years when they have good values and they've solidified the values, then there's a chance that they will never develop the, 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 the hunger for that. And they'll say, I don't want that. That's not my life. Those are not my values. And there's a real easy way. And, and, and a lot of people, again, I'm, I'm telling you, I know people like this who've been raised, born to the manor, they've been raised in Kedusha, and they never um, leave that Kedusha. Something that, that Shimshon himself can't say. Let me, let me, let me continue with Shimshon. It's, a, it's an intriguing topic, but I, I, just, I, I bring it in as an important part of most of what we're supposed to learn from him. When he wants to get married, his parents object for all the reasons that nice Jewish parents would object to their son. You're going to get trapped there. Oh, okay, fine. And the parents object. He explains that it's his plan, L'shem Shemaim, to infiltrate the, the Philistines, that Hashem, that he's, that Hashem himself um, approves of his plan, um, when he goes back, he ultimately persuades that he's on his way back to, to, um, to Mary. He detours from his parents. The explanation is sometimes brought because they're going through a vineyard. He doesn't want to go through a vineyard. He doesn't want to come anywhere near grapes and grape products. Alternately, he's going near, they're, they're going near dead bodies. He can't go near there, both because he's a Nazir. And then a strange thing happens on the way to the forum. You know the story? A lot of interesting episodes, unusual episodes with Shimshon. He's walking and suddenly he encounters a lion. This is the first time he knows this about himself. Exactly, that's the story. And he simply, without realizing he has the strength, rips the lion apart. And then, and then, and then, and then he looks down at himself. I mean, the Sukim doesn't doesn't say like don't say it like this, but he looks down. And he says, "Oh my, okay, wow, I'm a strong guy. I am. Who knew?" He didn't know. This is the first time he knows he has divine strength that's connected to his Nazirus. He didn't realize up until this moment. This is the moment where he realizes he got something from a Kaddish Baruch Hu that's unusual. He keeps it a secret. He's so surprised. 
he goes back and he finds the lion's carcass with an unusual, and this is full of metaphors. They've looked at the Mepharshim. They give lots of different explanations. But the simple shot is nested in the lion's carcass is a bee, is a bee, a beehive, and there's honey there. <clears throat> he eats some honey. He gives some to his parents. Close of chapter one, but we're going to darshan all of these things. I'm going to suggest some of the readings. He goes down to his wedding. And the, he's marrying into the Philistines. And he poses famously a riddle. By the way, Shimshon himself, the riddle is another metaphor for the man. He himself is a riddle. How do we understand him? He's one of the most intriguing, hard to understand figures. And the riddle is a famous one. I'll say it in Hebrew. From the food, excuse me, from the eater, I should say, from the eater comes out food. From the strong comes out sweet. How would they know that? Right. That's my question. I have. I'll give you. I'll suggest an answer. It's. It's. You know. I, I have a problem with this. With this riddle that Shimshon asks. It's unanswered. It's like saying. It's like saying. Okay, I got a great riddle for all you guys. Surely tell me. Yeah, exactly. Or what did I eat for dinner last night? <laughs> you don't know this. Well, how? how why? How like could you possibly know such a thing? Right, so it's such a particular thing to his life. Why is this a fair riddle? But the police team don't blink. They seem to understand it. Not only that, they bet, they bet a, um, the 30 police team, they bet 30 very fancy garments and linen that who, if they can get the riddle, they'll, they'll, they'll win these things. And if not, then, then they'll give it over to him. Um, interestingly, he is his riddle. Can you see how the metaphors inside the riddle itself convey Shimshon, something about Shimshon. He has the strength of a lion. He has the strength of a lion. He's prone to the sweet pleasures of life, in, in other words, in women. Um, his, the women, we know that they have a sweetness to them. Their honey is sometimes mitigated with their sudden sting like a bee. Um, Aryeh in Gematria. Aryeh in Gematria. What's your Gematria, Aryeh? 216, 216, which comes out to the same gematria as the Hebrew word, gvura, strength. So an, a lion has strength, Shimshon has that strength. Um, dvash, as we're about to eat on Rosh Hashanah in a few days, dvash is honey, is the gematria, 306, which is the same gematria, dvash is the same gematria, isha, women. Women are like honey. They're sweet like honey, but be careful of their sting. Ezehu Gibor, who's the strong man, according to our sources, who's the ultimate strong man? Not necessarily Shimshon, not necessarily a weightlifter, but who's strong? Very good. Can you say that in the Lashon of the Mishnah? Ezehu Gibor, Hakovish Es Yitzro. Who's strong? The one who conquers his Yitzro. That's the ultimate sign of strength. He could be, he could be uh, a, a weakling in physical terms, but he, we consider him. Do you know who the strongest man, hands down, of the 20th century was? And it wasn't Arnold Schwarzenegger. Seriously, it's in, it's in history. I think I posed this question before. No, no, 20th century. Last, 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 last 100 years, he was the Chazon Ish. And I'm going, to have to, I'm going to have to substantiate my claim that he was the strongest man. But I think once you learn about the Chazanish, nobody will argue with me. He was in every way, shape, and form. And if he was sickly his entire life, you looked at him, you thought you'd be, you'd be concerned that the wind would blow him away. 
but he was by far the strongest man, and I got stories to substantiate that. Wait, Nobody can like, take on. Strong like actual strength, or like strong like mental. Okay, so what I'm claiming that they're that they're synonymous one with the other, and you'll hear my story to back this up, and you'll have to stick with me till the end of the of the history class. In any case, in any case, he's, he conquers his Yetzirah. Shimshon has a, has, a, has a challenge with his Yetzirah um, to the question, why pose a riddle that can't possibly be solved? So the Me'am Lewes has the following suggestion. Me'am Lewes, which is a collection of Agadita and, and Mepharshim, says that he uses this as a pretext to avenge them. And he basically, there are two options. Either he's going he's gonna to stump them, because how could they possibly know? Or how could they possibly get... How could they possibly three days? How could they possibly get it right? They could cheat, and if they cheat, they're also going to be undermined. So they're going to be they're going to cheat and do it the wrong way, or they're they're not going to get it. And ultimately, remember, his real quest is to is to vanquish the police. I thought he wanted to do it so that they would get it wrong, and they wouldn't want to pay him. Exactly, it's a pre. That's exactly what the Malmoway says. It's a pretext to get to the police team, hundred percent. Ultimately, they are well frustrated by this riddle. They, um, they start, they threaten his wife, his new wife. They say, if you do not somehow get us the answer to this riddle, we're going to burn down your family's, uh, your family's real estate. She's terrified. Um, she begs Shimshon, and be careful of women's tears. They get you every time. Remember what Chava does to Adam. She begs him, she cries, please give us the answer. He finally breaks down. He reveals the answer to the riddle. She tells them. They respond, Ma Masok, what's sweeter than honey? They respond, what's stronger than lion? You get, they get the right answer. He says to them, these are famous psukim, if you would not have plowed with my heifer, uh, you would not have sowed my riddle, solved my riddle. You wouldn't have gotten into the thing, which has all kinds of meaning in itself. He, as, as, as he sets it up, he uses as a pretext for war, he goes and kills Plishtim in a rage. He steals the garments, pays off the, the, the groomsmen with the garments, and then. Surely, could you close the door behind you? Thank you, very kind. Um, he then, all very unusual stories. I include these because you should just be familiar with them. If you're intrigued by them, go look up the Psukim and find out the, the depths of the shot. He then finds the tails of 300 foxes. He attaches torches to the tails. The foxes go running through the fields of the police team and burn them all down. Where how does it come up in history? Oh, because people will yeah, use these images. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't underestimate the Tanakh. The Tanakh has a huge impact on all of human history, for sure. So that this, these are famous scenes. They respond by uh, capturing the wife and the, and her family. They burn them down. They burn them to death. Literally, literally, they set the fields on fire. Correct. They then capture Shimshon. What's that? The police team will. The, the foxes burn down the uh, the fields. Um, he then he's captured, but he breaks free. Remember his superhuman strength. He slays a thousand of the police team with the jawbone of a donkey. And then drinks wild wine. Well, uh, no, not yet blind. He's not been blinded yet. That's later on. Um, then there's an interesting episode. I only mention it now because it's very relevant these days. There's an episode where he's thirsty and he davens in a shem performs a miracle, he brings him water from a stone, 
And um, that's the Nes Minatsur. It's the only time in our tefillah that Shimshon appears and it comes in Slichos by, by, excuse me, by Hoshana Rabbah. Pay attention in a couple of weeks, we're going to say this in Hoshana Rabbah. It says, Gam Shimshon Asa Nes Betsur Shomayim. Also for Shimshon, Hashem made a miracle in the, ro- in the rock, but he gets water for Shimshon. And he'll drink from the same jawbone of the donkey, correct. Okay, the next part is the very famous story, probably familiar. He's in a place called Nachal Sorek, which today is identified as the Beit Shemesh area. You can hike there, a lot of great hikes. Maybe we'll do one of those this year as well. And he sees another Philistine woman. Her name? Right, Delilah. Delilah in the uh, Christian version, we call her Delilah in the, in the Pasuk. Um, he's smitten with her. The police team know, oh, we have another chance to get this guy. The police team are afraid now. Shimshon's got superhuman strength. They want to be able to conquer him. Um, they bribe Delilah with, with 1,100 shekels. Um, she, says, she says, please tell me the secret of your strength. I'll do anything. Of course, she's doing it for money. He tells her, I can't. I can't. I'll lose my strength. Um, if they, if they ever, anybody ever finds out, if they bind me with bowstrings, they'll, they'll be able to conquer me. Uh, kind of a string that you use with a bow. Kind of a string. Like cord. Right. Like cord, exactly. Um, he's asleep. She binds him with bowstrings. Nasty. You'd think he'd learn, right? But no. He wakes up. He snaps them. But he doesn't leave the Leela. So she continues, she persists, she begs him, tell me the secret, that wasn't the truth. He told me a lie, she starts crying, you know, a woman's tears again. He tells her he's gonna lose his strength if tied with fresh new rope. He goes to sleep, she ties him up, he breaks free. You'd think somebody would learn from the cycle, but no. Uh, she cries again. She cries again, exactly. Um, he then reveals if anybody ever cuts my hair, I will lose my strength. And that one was the truth. And um, the Gemara in Sota comments and says, if in his, in his 20 years as a judge, he never used Hashem's name in vain, and he used Hashem's name when he told her that if they cut my hair, I'll be, I'll, 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 they'll, they'll get me. And Delilah knows now he's telling the truth. One second. She was a plishti woman, right? Plishti woman who she, he, she converted and he marries her, yeah. He married her first, and then... Well, he first made sure she converted, and then he married her. Like all of his, like all the, all the women, that was the way it went. Wait. But she was clearly the conversion. He's faulted, I mentioned this last week, he's faulted because she was never sincere in her conversion. Nobody else realized. Nobody else knew, like, Shipshon, this woman is bad. There's Shipshon, no evidence of that. Shipshon, not It's a good question. Apparently not. Apparently, again, he's the metaphor for us of somebody who becomes so enthralled with his passions... He's blinded by it, literally and figuratively. He doesn't see the truth. And this, and I tell the story is a real, you know, don't you really, you know, you, you, if we're standing in the spectator spots, we say, Shimshon, no, don't tell her. Don't you realize, you know, not that you learned from the past, but you know what, you know what get love does, right? It blinds you, the Yitzhahara. Like watching a movie or something, you know, the guy, What's that? A movie. A what? A movie is like, it's like, it's, it's like, like a bunch of pictures moving really fast. Moving yeah. fast, okay, all right. Yeah, like don't open the closet. Don't open the closet. Fine, that's that's what we, I, I think. There's a deeper shot. That is one shot. Like people are just foolish. Fair. 
but there's a deeper shot on how you know people who allow their Yetzirah to overcome them and to dictate their lives, you know, like 99% of humanity, like most guys in Derech also, the, the Yetzirah is really in charge of their lives. Most people, most people, the Yetzirah on some level, maybe big, maybe big time, maybe small time, but on some level the Yetzirah is calling the shots and they do not realize it. And otherwise intelligent people are utterly cowed by the Yetzirah because when you want to believe something, you'll believe it. That's just the way it works, Barack. Wait, um, so, so I understand that, that these two converted, but, but what about uh, the Frasca, the, the second wife? Did she also convert? The Chazal say that they all converted. So even, even the Frasca? Yeah, all of them. Good question. So, I mean, there's no one on the new side, so uh, I'm not for a second that the doll was even to, to not see or to not realize or how they just chase after the doll. Is there maybe like a couple of things to like, no, more. Them? it's not a Kabbalistic answer. It's the answer that I said very, too briefly before, and so let me give it more emphasis. He ultimately meant what he was doing, L'Shem Shemaim. He was trying to infiltrate the Philistines, and this was his way of doing so through the women. So on a certain level, he was trying to do the right thing, but he did it the wrong way, and he didn't take into consideration. It's a big lesson in Musr. you got to know your limitations. You have to know what you can and can't do. He didn't adequately account for his own massive typhus, his weakness when it came to women, and, and, and therefore that led to his undoing. You can, by the way, you can do lots of things, L'Shem Shemayim, but if you're putting yourself into what we call a Nisayon, a test that you don't think you can pass, don't go there. Don't do that. Try, don't try this at home, kids. And he won't be the last person in history who simply stumbles because he doesn't adequately assess his own weaknesses. So she has a, she, he, te, he reveals that if his hair is cut, his strength will be sapped. She has a servant cut, shave seven locks of his hair off. It breaks his nazirus, it breaks his strength. Um, and he's captured by the Philistines who now, knowing better after lots of trial and error, they know you don't mess around with this guy. The first thing that they do is to remove his eyes. And that's the story that you remember. They remove his eyes, and of course the metaphor is unmistakable. The Mishnah Sota says it explicitly. The same eyes that would lead him astray are, the, are ultimately punished. It's really not the Plishtim, it's the Kaddish Baruch Hu orchestrating, as he does with everything else in this world, orchestrating events and showing Mida Kineged Mida, everybody gets their, their proper comeuppance, what they deserve, and the eyes that lead him, lead, led him astray are ultimately blinded. They were blinding him anyway in this world, and they literally physically blinded him. And he's brought, in the end of the story of Shimshon, he's brought down to Gaza, which uh, alternately had some Jewish uh, significance in, in, through history. Um, they put him to work as a slave grinding grain. One day, they assemble masses of men and women on their major temple. They're on the roof to celebrate the capture of Shimshon. You have to realize. Shimshon was the bully. He was scary to the Philistines. They didn't know what to do with him, so his capture was seen as a major feather in their cap. They offered to their god, the god called Dagon. The fish god, also Dagon, has a connotation of, 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 of wheat. Um, the Medrash in Yalku Shimoni tells us that um, it was then that they weren't just celebrating, but they wanted to somehow capture Shimshon's strength. And the Medrash tells us that they had Shimshon cohabit with their, wa their women so that they would bear strong children like him. 
And the metaphor is also very, very, uh, very. It, it runs through many, many different things. Dagon is fish. What do we say about fish? Viidgu larov bekerav haaretz. The bracha that Yaakov gives to um, Ephraim and Menashe. They should be multiple, like fish. There's an idea of fertility. Shimshon is meant for fertility, and the police team want to capitalize in it, capitalize on his strength, and have literally, you know, their children all come out with his strength. It's not going to work, obviously. Although interestingly, it might work in one case. I'll explain in a moment. Um, the word Shimshon also has a, has a connotation of fertility because the sun makes things grow. So Shimshon Shemesh is fertility. Dagan is also wheat. Dagancha. So wheat also is fertility. All these, all the fertility image images. Um, we'll see this later on. That it may be that Shimshon cohabits with one of the Philistine women, and through them, as a descendant, he has one descendant who is very strong and very famous. Do you know who I'm thinking of? Well, I'm not going to tell you. But you can look it up if you want. You can either you can either figure it out for yourselves or stay tuned. It'll come in a few days in history. We'll, we'll, we'll encounter a, somebody who at least is a theory, is a suggestion, maybe the descendant of Shimshon who may have inherited some of his strength. In the end, Shimshon's hair grows back. And he davens to Hashem, please avenge my blindness. And when all the people are assembled in this temple to Dagon, he famously pulls the two pillars together. The entire temple collapses. All the Philistines present are killed. Their rulers all perish. And Shimshon Hagibor himself dies. The Pasuk tells us he kills more people in his death than he did during his entire lifetime. It's one of these spectacular uh, grand finales. But Hashem does one final chesed, seeing that Shimshon, complicated figure, fundamentally, fundamentally motivated Hashem Shemaim, the temple itself falls backwards, and it's a chesed. His parents come later, and they find his body. Why? Why is that a chesed? Give proper kfura. A big tzaddik deserves burial, kfura, Big mitzvah to do that, and they're able to give their son proper kfura. Um, and we know what's that? Yeah. So there is a place you can go to in the area of Dan today, not far from what they call Kever Dan, which is highly questionable if that's the authentic site. And just up the way, it's on the way. It's between Bain Sora the Eshtaol. The pesukim say it's between the place today that's called Sora and Eshtaol on the way down to Beit Shemesh. If you've ever been in that area, there's a traditional gravesite to Shimshon, and right next to it is his father Menoyach. Um, are those the graves? We have no reason to believe that they are. There's no tradition for it. It's entirely, and not only that, those are among the many graves in Israel that if you were to go and visit the exact same spot 30 years ago. 40 years ago maybe, you would find what's called the Kever Sheikh, an Arab grave site. So what seems to be is that people came along and found these Arab grave sites, put up, plunked up a sign that says Shimshon, and it became a fact in the ground, and now everybody goes to Shimshon's Kever. Does that mean that it's definitely not Shimshon's Kever? No. It means that they took a kever sheikh and made it to Shimshon's kever, but you know what could have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago? Maybe some Arabs came along to Shimshon's original grave and made it a kever sheikh of an Arab. Meaning, we don't know. And so I can't prove that it's not, I can't prove that it is. I have reason to question it, as, as we have reason to question where, where Manoach is buried. It's maybe in the right general area, so who knows? Maybe it is. But we do know at the upshot of all of this, the Philistines are so severely weakened, we don't hear from them for the next 20 years. So Shimshon has at least a, a short-term legacy. 
And long term, I mean long term, Shimshon has as metaphoric in the world, Samsonite luggage. You know why Samsonite? Because he, he's a strong, takes a licking, keeps on ticking kind of kind of luggage. Um, Samson and Delilah, um, Vladimir Jabotinsky, the header of the, the, the founder of um, right wing Zionism, the the spiritual architect of the Likud party, um, actually wrote a screenplay and they made a movie called Samson and Delilah based on his uh, his initial text. Okay, all kinds of interesting trivia involved involved with this, but but. Um, there's even in the DSM, it's not, it's not in the DSM manual, but in um, documented in and in the field of, of mental health and psychology, there is a syndrome that they call Samson syndrome of men who, what they call, have trouble overcoming their taivas for women. Um, for our, for us, we emphasize the fact what Chazal say he was was what's not always appreciated a great tzaddik and Talmud Chacham who had this other thing going on in his life, and some of the two coexisted in one. Imperfect human being. All of our all of our role models are imperfect, um, and we're supposed to learn from them. Um, one of the last of the Shof team is a great figure named Eli Hakohen, who um, who descends. He was the Kohen Gadol in this day. Where again is he Kohen Gadol? Where's the center of gravity for the Jewish people at this stage still in history? As we round out the period of the Shof team, where's 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 uh, the center of the Jews? Still. No, 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 no such thing yet. There's no Jerusalem. Oh, come on. Tel Aviv was founded in 1909. What? And it wasn't called that then. What? Nobody? Starts with a shin, ends with an elo? Oh, you're good. Shiloh. Shiloh. 369 years. We're now rounding out the history of Shiloh. The Mishkan has been, remember we talked about the semi-permanent uh, structure of the Mishkan. There's stone walls for the first time. The Jews have been, have been stationed there. And Elias Kohen Gadol in Shiloh, where we find him, where we meet him, he's a great figure, he's a big tzaddik. He's, he's, the, he's the only figure who's simultaneously the Shofetz, which means he's the Gadolador, he's the conduit of the Masaira. Remember the Masaira that links back to Moshe Rabbeinu, the, the oral tradition that interprets the written Torah. He's also, and he's the Kohen Gadol at the same time. Um, he's also a Chiddush because he descends from Isamar. You remember Aaron has four sons. What are the four sons' names? You have Nadav and Aviyu. Whatever happened to them? They died, they died in a strange fire. Elazar Cohen was the um, was the next Cohen Gadol. His son Pinchas was the next Cohen Gadol. Isamar begets a minority of the of the high priests, but Eli is one of them. He himself his. How is he the next link in the tradition, in the oral tradition, that we're going to spend a certain amount of time? That's critical. You've got to know the oral tradition, and we'll talk about it. But he's the next link because he learned with Pinchas, and his other Rebbe was Shimshon. And he, he, was, he was Kohen Gadol and Shofet for 40 years. And we meet him, actually, he plays an important role, but probably the most famous scene. He's more of a supporting player to another figure who comes along right at the very beginning of the next Sefer in the Tanakh. Before Shmuel, there was his mother, Chana. We named our we named one of our our youngest baby Chana. Uh, very much was the original Chana, one of the great Zedekos of all history. She's one of the seven prophetesses, as we learned. Her husband is Elkanah Hanavi. He's also a prophet. She's a prophetess, and he's a prophet. Excellent. This is the story. It's the very beginning of Sefer Shmuel. And when traditionally do we read the story of Chana? 
Oh, you wouldn't know about it. It's on a certain holiday, remote holiday. It's called Rosh Hashanah. Uh, pay attention, the second day of Rosh Hashanah, this coming this week to a holiday near you, uh, we're going to be reading about Hannah's story. Okay, the very first, very opening of, of Sefer Shmuel. So here's, here's, here's a little bit about Elkanah and Hannah. Elkanah has two wives, Hannah and Penina. With Penina, he loves Hannah, he loves Hannah. Penina is mother to, a, to ten of his children. She has children, Hannah, the Pasuk tells us, is barren. We see a lot of our great women. Who else was barren? Rivka, Sarah, Sarah. Sarah to you and me. Shmuel. Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. Leah also, it's a Kiddush, people don't realize, Leah was also barren, Hashem opens her womb, the Pasuk says. Shimshon's uh, mother. mother, we saw it, right, Slalponi, was also, uh, was also barren. Hannah is barren. Slalponi, obviously, you didn't know? Come on, Arya, get with the program. Hannah is barren. You have to ask, why does Hashem do this? Why does Hashem make women barren? One of the reasons the Chazal tell us, Hashem deeply desires the tefillah of righteous people. And sometimes we have misyonos, we have hard situations in life. Very few situations are more difficult for women than not being able to have babies. And, um, and He wants the tefillah. And to her great sadness, she has no children. Um, the Yalkut Shimoni Medrash tells us that Penina would ask her, this sounds really cruel, it's not meant to be cruel. She asks, oh, Hannah, did you buy your, remember she has 10 kids, Hannah has none. She says, did you buy your son the, uh, a scarf or a shirt or a robe? Oh, I'm sorry, you don't have any sons. <laughs> Never mind. Oh, hey, Hannah, aren't you getting up to wash your children's faces so they can go to school? Oh, you don't have children. Never mind. By the way, you're, what, what is this? What, what technically this is a prohibition? What's the name of this prohibition? You should know this too. Being a jerk. There's an issue the rice of being a jerk. It's called onus dvaring. People don't realize it. If you say something thoughtless or cruel, you're violating a deraisa. It's not lashon hara. It's, it's related and overlapping, but it's not the same avera. The avera is called onus dvaring. You can't do it. Be very sensitive and thoughtful. For example, around childless people, not to speak about, not to show out your, you know, the pictures of your nieces and nephews. Right? Don't, don't, don't aggravate them with, with greater sadness. So Panina said, aren't you getting up to greet your children when they come back from school? Oh, you don't have any children. Again, the same thing. She mentioned L'shem Shemai. Why did she do it? She felt that Hannah wasn't davening stark enough. And she felt that if she said this, it would, it would increase Hannah's um, kavana in her tefillah. That was her motivation. Chazal tell us explicitly, don't worry, she's going to get punished anyway. You could have the right intention and still do the wrong thing and she'll be punished. Go ahead. Louder, I don't hear you. Yes. We say the minute you say Bishatova, it's not a real thing yet until the baby's born, correct? Because it could be an ayan hara. for sure. And and right. We'll see Panina will get we'll 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 again she means well, but it was the wrong thing to do. Um Elkana came to Shiloh every year, every every um Regal, every one of the Shalosh Regalim, to offer korbonos. He would give of his korbonos, he'd give to his beloved Hannah a double portion to show how much he loved her. Um, and she's not assuaged. She wants a baby. She wants to be able to be part of the tradition, part of the legacy, the heritage of Klal Yisrael. Not being able to have a baby would not per permit her to do her full uh, avoda in this world. She 
goes to the Mishkan and famously she tearfully davens for a son. She promises Hashem, please give me a son. Her tefillah is very famous. Actually, um, she threatens Hashem. The Gemara in, in Brachos, Lamed Aleph, says that she says to Hashem a few things. She says, um, there's no reason to give a woman um, uh, the ability to nurse. She says, you gave me the ability to nurse, but I don't have a son to nurse. So you must justify the existence of my ability to nurse by giving me an object of that, of that ability. She says later, she says, you know, Hashem, you tell us the Parsha of Sota, a woman who has Yichud, is, is locked up with a man, um, and then goes through the entire ordeal of the Sota woman, including drinking the bitter water. We know that a guilty woman dies a horrific death, but an innocent woman who go through this ordeal is promised in your Torah, she says, she'll have a baby. So she says, you know, we can, I'm paraphrasing, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. You can just <laughs> give me a baby, you know, so much easier for all of us, right? But that's okay, you don't have to give me a baby, Hashem. That's just fine. Instead, I'll have Yichud with a man, we'll be innocent. My husband will threaten me, he'll do kinui v'siri, do the whole ritual, we'll go to the mishkan, I'll drink the bitter water, unfortunately, I'm afraid we'll have to erase your, the, the, the holy letters of your, of your holy name, but that's okay, in the end I'll be found innocent, and you'll give me the baby the other way, your choice, whatever you think. The Gemara says she's one of two figures, together with Elia Navi, who's mitiach dvareha klape mala, she, as it were, speaks insolently, to Hashem, and it's totally acceptable. Don't try this at home, kids. Only if you know that you're like Hannah, that you have pure L'shem Shemaim intention, can you speak like this. She wanted a baby to do Kiddush Hashem. That was her intention in the world. If that's what you want in your davening, you can daven however which way you'd like. And Hannah davens accordingly to Kaddish Baruch Hu, and she's so tearful, she's so sorrowful, she's so, um, as it were, spilling her heart out to Kaddish Baruch Hu from this, such soulful tefillah, that Ellie, sitting in the corner, doesn't understand. And he rebukes her. What is this this drunken woman? He calls her a shikora. But the Gra explains famously, the Vilnagon explains, he read through his Urim and Tumim that she was kish, she was a shikora, which is spelled shin, chaf, resh, he. But he was a big Talmud Chacham, and he made a mistake. He was, he was maybe not the biggest Talmud Chacham because of his mistake because he inverted the letters. Instead of Shikora, the message that he should have read through his Urim and Tumim was that she was sorrowful, not Shikora, not drunkard, but Kisara. We also read about it on Rosh Hashanah. She is as sad as Sarah was, was when Sarah was barren. She was sad, and that's like Hannah, and, and equally as righteous too. And um, she rebukes him. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important episode and probably the greatest legacy from that episode. What do we learn from Hana? Famously. Chazal tells us the same that Gemara tells us. What do we learn from her? Before then, we teach the major principles of tefillah from this episode with Hana. She is, more than anybody else in history, the architect of how to pray appropriately to Kaddish Baruch Hu. It's one of the reasons why we read her parsha on Rosh Hashanah, on Yom Adin, when we need to get our act together and we need to know how to daven appropriately. So here are, exactly, here are several of the details that Chazal derived from the Psukim about her prayer. Um, we know that Rak Svaseha Naos V'kola Lonishma only her lips moved but her voice was not heard means that she has to, you have to articulate every single word of tefillah 
unlike if you heard Rav Rosen's shmuz last night, he pointed out that some people don't do this properly. They, they, they mutter a bunch of gobbledygook, but they don't really daven. Um, but you can't be audible. You can't, you can't speak out loud. People around you shouldn't hear your tefillah. That we get from Chana. Um, we know that tefillah requires kavana. If you have no kavana, you have not davened. You're not yotzi. And that's from Chana. We know that you can't dr be drunk when you daven. That's why you have to wait a little bit if you're too drunk on Purim. We know that you can't sit within dalid amos of one who's davening, something that I notice in the morning and even the afternoon sometimes people are not careful with. But if somebody is still in the presence of the shechina, as you are whenever you're davening, don't sit around there. You're sitting in the presence of the shechina within dalid amos. Um, at the, um, she becomes pregnant. Hashem hears her tefillah. And at the, at the age of... 130, which is of course every time you see that number, what should you remember history class? Yes. What's 130? You remember this? I can't think of the word. Uh, the Adam sinned and he created the forces of the Erev Rav, the subversive force in history. Every time, pay attention to that number, every time we encounter it, it's another another chance to fix the Erev Rav. She, like Moshe's mother, Yocheva, was 130 when Moshe was born. Hannah is not coincidentally 130 when she gives birth to Shmuel. And when he turns three, she's been waiting, all of this is really, this, this is what clinched it for us to name our baby Hannah. Um, two years ago, when he turns three, she brings him to Eli in the Mishkan so he can be an apprentice. He can be a Talmud to Eli and learn from him. Now picture this. She has been distressed for years. She's been begging, davening for a baby. Finally she gets a baby. Finally she can dress him for school and knit, knit him sweaters and do all the things that Emas like to do for their sons. And instead of getting any personal nachas from it, she relinquishes him, she brings the boy to Eli, and that's it, she doesn't see him anymore. She, doesn't, she effectively is not really raising him. But she promises. That's what her promise would. And um, she basically is an icon of Mesiris Nefesh, totally giving herself over to Hashem and Avodah Hashem. I'm not here for the kicks. I'm not here to get my own nachas. She gives Shmuel over to Eli. Um, finally, the answer to all of Panina, Panina's provocations arrives. And she doesn't go and get any personal benefit. Um, she sings a famous song that we're going to sing soon too, a praise to Hashem, including some very famous psukim. Ein kadosh kashem, ki ein biltecha. There's nothing holy like Hashem. She is an icon of, of Yira and Ava. Um, these psukim are repeated in Tehillim as well. Uh, Eli blesses her again, and ultimately she'll conceive three more sons and two daughters. Um, all of Panina's children's children die. And go look, go go look more deeply into the into the sugya. See, it's a punishment, but Panina's a tzaddik is too, and you have to understand more carefully what was going on. Um, okay, Shmuel is an apprentice for for Eli, and in the Mishkan in Shiloh, he's there day by day learning Torah. Remember, it's not just what you do in the Mishkan, but it's the entire Mesorah, the entire tradition. And at one point, he's still very young. He paskins halacha in front of his Rebbe, in front of Eli. What is the halacha for somebody who paskins halacha? Beware of this one in front of your Rebbe. Chayv Misa. Capital, capital offense. And Chana steps forward and defends her son. She said, Elinar, this child I daven for, you can't kill him now. Uh, and, and, and Shmuel is spared. Um, Wait, Rabbi, how can they accept her? 
testimony. First of all, she's a woman, she can't testify. She's not testifying, there's no testimony here. She's not allowed. So they find they find a way they find a way out out of it. Ellie had requested a Cohen to do Shrita. Shmuel pointed out that any man can do it. They say that it was not technically poskening before the Rebbe, and, and he's able to get off with a warning. Um, We're in the middle of the story. We're talking about Eli. We're talking about. Um, I'll just mention now. I'll introduce two more figures. Hofni and Pinchas are the sons of Eli. And how do we characterize Hofni and Pinchas? Somebody just said it. Bad guys. That's the way the Psukim seem to refer to them. And I'll I'll, I'll quote now a Gemara in Shabbos that says, Pinchas Chatu Anybody who claims that Hofni and Pinchas were bad guys who who sinned. They're mistaken. And it, here's, here's another point. I'm sorry, Elon's not here because he, he mentioned this earlier. We're talking about such things. Um, you can't learn Tanakh without Chazal. If you don't have Chazal, you're getting half the story, which is really none of the story. Um, you need the guidance of the written Torah, to, of the oral Torah, to unpack what the written Torah means. And so, as Rosh Hashem, from here, we'll pick up tomorrow with the story, with the, with the, with the very important story of Chofni and Pinchas and what happens to Shmuel as he grows, and particularly with the Arun Kodesh, the holy ark that's situated in the midst of the Mishkan Shiloh, but that's just temporary. Uh, somebody please hit the proverbial low keys on the piano, and with that, we'll, we'll call it, we'll call it a, a, a lecture, a shir. Let's go ahead.